Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, feel free to grab your chairs. Feel free to leave a few of the donuts for when I go back later. No. Uh, it's great to have everyone here today. And today we're going to continue our series through the book of through the book of Thessalonians. And um, I think Rich kicked us off a week or two ago. Brad continued on last week. We've worked our way to chapter 2 of Thessalonians. Uh, but before we get started, I thought I'd just share with you kind of a personal story that occurred to me just oh, within the last 10 days. And uh, it's kind of... Uh, at least from my vantage point, probably not so much from yours, but it was one of the most fascinating uh, experiences that I've had and uh, in my personal life over the last 10 days. Uh, it was uh, about, in fact, it was two weeks ago because it was right after church on Sunday. I was driving home and I got a call from a professional genealogist from Anaheim, California. And this professional genealogist uh, asked me a question. Now, before I tell you what the question is, I got to backtrack and give you a little history. Ever since I was a little kid, I was just totally fascinated by my dad's brother, who, my uncle, who was killed in World War II. He was killed in a New Guinea campaign. And I don't know what it was. I just was always fascinated by that. And so I wanted to know and learn, even as a kid, all that I could about this guy. And so I would ask questions of uncles and aunts, my dad, my mom, all, anyone who knew him. And I kind of make mental, uh, just file away mentally some of these historical facts. But then as time went on, I got even more interested and started tracking down soldiers that he served with. I found one guy that was just 10 yards away from him when he was killed. I wanted to know all the specifics of the battle, the history, and really track down a lot of interesting tidbits. In fact, I have a photograph of a Japanese sniper uh, that was killed the day that my uncle was killed. And I even thought, you know, that's the face of a soldier who could have killed my uncle. I mean, just all kinds of details like that I try to acquire. And I put it together in a manuscript called Somewhere in the South Pacific, which is uh, where he went and what he was, where he was told he was going to go. You're going to go somewhere in the South Pacific. On the ship over, they added the little hint somewhere that begins with the letter A and that would be Australia and then from there he went on to New Guinea but again it was just something I had such an interest in and fascination over over the years in fact recently I received a file from the government and in that file was a letter I wrote 25 years ago requesting his uh, death records and I also requested the army archive records and just anything I could so it's been something I've had a strong interest in and about two years ago I finished this manuscript on his life and um, I've even added to it some sense. Jumping back now two weeks ago, on the way home from church, I got this call from this professional genealogist, and she said, uh, are you Tim Cavan? I said, well, yes. And she said, you know, we're, we're looking for a relative or someone who would know of a soldier that was killed in World War II. Now, I said, well, what's his name? And they said, well, Paul Cavanaugh. And I said, well, that's my uncle. Now, his remains were declared in 1950 as non-recoverable. And I have all the letters that my grandma wrote over those eight years requesting, begging for his remains back. She said, you know, hey, there's a shipload of bodies came into San Francisco the other day. And, you know, soldiers that were killed long after my son. What have we done wrong? You know, where, why are we not getting his body back? letters like that and so it was really meaningful to our family my grandparents to try to secure his remains this this uh, genealogist said look uh, we think we might have found your uncle's remains and it's kind of an astounding thing now I knew exactly where he's buried given my uh, history I said now he was he was killed four and a half miles north of Saputa on the Saputa San Ananda Trail there's a roadblock there. He's on the east side of the roadblock. Now that alone narrows it down to the size of a football field. Is that where these bodies came from? And they said, yes. And I said, how many do you have? She said, I don't know, but there's a lot of them. And sometimes, and it's called No Soldier Left Behind, even now, 73 years later, the United States Army is still following up leads on remains of soldiers that have fallen in World War II. 
And sometimes it's new technologies. Sometimes it's just local reports from the area, uh, you know, that have come to the attention of the Army. And they'll send this particular department from the Army out to investigate. And now all these remains they've discovered are in a laboratory in Hawaii. But she said, you know, we need a DNA sample. And so two days later, I received uh, a kit, and I'm representing the male side of my uncle, which is the Y, is that a chromosome, I think, uh, genetic detail. And uh, so I provide that being a male relative. His sister is still alive, and she provides the mitochondrial side of the DNA genetic code, and they need both. So she's doing DNA sample, and you know, I had the privilege of doing a DNA sample also. In fact, my mom had to witness it, and she cut Uncle Paul's hair the night before he left. And here she was now, 73 years later, witnessing uh, my taking a DNA sample. Uh, it's like a nail file, kind of a texture, this little stick you put it in the inside of your cheekbone, and then you send that back in. And uh, it'll be 9 to 24 months before we find out if there's a positive match. And I'm telling you, we've got folks, in fact, honestly, I wept over this. I'm just hoping we even found a tooth, you know, a fragment of a bone. I mean, we'd love to have a burial in our hometown in Iowa uh, of a tooth. <laughs> if, we, if we could even find that, it'd be so exciting. But I just thought I'd share that with you since it's such an amazing, at least for me, it was such an amazing bit of history. Now, retaining that World War II theme, how many of you watched the movie Saving Private Ryan? I bet most, yeah, almost all of us. You remember the scene on the bridge where, uh, I think it was Captain Miller was dying on the bridge, and Private Ryan came up to him, and they were kind of talking right as Miller was about to expire, and Miller told Private Ryan, remember the words, earn this? I remember watching the movie, I couldn't quite understand those words. I had to backtrack it a few times, but he said, earn this. And of course, what did that mean? You know, what would that mean to Private Ryan to earn what Captain uh, Miller and other soldiers did? They lost their lives to save Private Ryan's. What would Private Ryan need to do to earn what those men did? Well, you know, the movie jumps back into him as an older man there in Normandy and watching the graves of John Miller. The whole movie is him at the graveside, and his wife comes up and asks if he was okay. And he just asks her, am I a good man? And I think that's what he thought it meant, to earn it, was to be a good man. Well, you know, as Christians, you know, we're actually called to earn what Jesus did for us. Paul had a phrase for that. It was, walk in a manner worthy of what Jesus did for you. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for us to walk in a manner worthy of what Jesus did for us on the cross, which is to die on the cross for, to save us? Well, that's the theme of the second part of, of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The theme really is walking in a manner worthy of what Jesus did for us. So what do you say we pray? I'll give you a brief overview in case you're kind of new to the series. won't take long on that. And then we'll move right into the second half of chapter 2 today to try to explore just what that means. To live in a life worthy of what Jesus did. You know, to live a life that really uh, earns what Jesus did on the cross for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm just reminded of that passage that says, A day in thy court is of greater value than a thousand outside. Perhaps an hour of a week is of greater value than all the other hours of the week that we live. Hours spent earning a living, hours spent raising our children and assuming all kinds of responsibilities. All those hours, Lord. Uh, but... Lord, there's just nothing of greater value than worshiping you, being together with those that are worshiping you, even in the midst of those hours during the week. Really, Lord, it's only as we use them in worship of you that we derive meaning and joy. And Lord, I just pray today you'd restore our souls, uh, feed our spirits, our souls, strengthen us spiritually as we set our eyes to in our knowledge of you 
as we renew our desire to follow you more closely. Lord, we just pray that we would indeed learn more and more what it means to earn, or at least what it means to walk worthily of what you did for us on the cross by dying for us on that cross. And Father, we uh, thank you for these few moments together. We commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty. And I think you all should have a handout. And, uh, you know, this is kind of a picture of where it all began back in Paul's day. And uh, this is where Paul's hometown was. It's a town called Tarsus. And Tarsus is in Turkey. You know, a lot of people don't think of the Apostle Paul as being a Turk. But he actually was. They didn't call it that then. It was actually called Asia Minor, what we today know as Turkey. But he ended up as a Christian. And he ended up in this town, Antioch, which is in Syria. And Antioch had become kind of a big mecca, a big major center of Christianity. Christianity, just like Jerusalem had been before Antioch. But Paul was based in Antioch with a lot of leaders and very vibrant ones, and they were praying. Acts chapter 13 verse 1 speaks of this, how they were just praying and seeking God's guidance, and the Holy Spirit laid it on these leaders in Antioch to send out a couple leaders from among them, Paul and Silas to, and Barnabas, to go on this missionary journey, the first missionary journey represented by the red circle there, the red lines. And so they went on this journey, and they led many people to Christ, but the city of Thessalonica wasn't even on their radar yet. That was in another country, Greece, during the first missionary journeys. But Paul then, after he got back to Antioch, was commissioned to go on another missionary journey. And this missionary journey did include Thessalonica on it. And Paul retraced some of what he did in the first missionary journey. Of course, he left from Antioch. And he traveled through what we know today as Turkey, into Greece, onto Thessalonica. And that's where this story takes place. This letter he wrote was written to the Thessalonians. And that's what we'll look at today. So why was this letter written? Why would he feel a need to write to the Thessalonians? Well, again, in Acts 17, you can read the story of Paul establishing this church in Thessalonica. And I'm always amazed because he was only there for three months. But in those three months, a lot happened. A lot of people became Christians. The leaders were Paul, Timothy, and Silas. A few of the converts were Jason, Secundus, and Aristarchus. You might go to church on Sunday morning and say, Good morning, Secundus. Because he was one of the church members, or Aristarchus. Now, Jason, you know, that kind of fits, really. That's not so odd. But that's what Paul did during this time. He and the other leaders, they lived lives. And in chapter 17, it said, though, that he had to flee from Thessalonica. Because the devout Jews of the area, and those that were becoming Christians, many were Gentiles, some Jews did. But the devout Jews were so opposed to Paul, uh, they would love to just kill him. And they were after him. And he had to flee for his life. And so his stay in Thessalonica, in a way, was cut short just after three months. And so he fled to Berea. And there in Berea he began to share the gospel with people. But not for long because those devout Jews of Thessalonica followed Paul to Berea. And began to seek out to kill him even there. To persecute the Christians there. So Paul had to flee from Berea. And then he went on into Athens. And then those devout Jews, they returned to Thessalonica. And they returned there where the little church Paul had started. You know, they couldn't leave on a missionary journey. They were stuck in Thessalonica. And so they continued to be persecuted by those devout Jews that lived in that same town with them. So one thing you'll know about the Thessalonians, they endured tons of persecution. Paul continued then from Athens. At one point, we learned that he wanted to return to Thessalonica. You know, he probably had a great heart for these people who were enduring such persecution that he himself endured while he was there. He wanted to encourage them, but his desire, his efforts to get back there were thwarted. And so he sent Timothy, we read that in 1 Thessalonians 3.1, to go back to Thessalonica to try to encourage on his behalf, encourage the church there. Paul was concerned for him. You know, if they endure too much, too much persecution, would they, you know, hold up to it as they would need to? Well, anyway, Timothy came back 
1 Thessalonians 3, 6, 8, we read this. Timothy came back to Paul with a good report. And he says, you'd be amazed, Paul. You'd be proud of these Thessalonians because they're standing up to the persecution that we experienced when we were there. And Paul was so encouraged at hearing this that he wrote them this letter, 1 Thessalonians. And so in chapter 1 that Brad shared with us last week, he basically had a very affectionate tone of thanksgiving in chapter 1, just expressing his pride in a sense over the Thessalonians and that they were standing up and living out their lives. And now in chapter 2, the first half of chapter 2, which Rich will share next week, uh, he speaks about the leadership and what they did while they were in Thessalonica. He said, you know, we suffered with you guys. We spoke to you guys. We exhorted you. Uh, we had pure motives. We were motherly. We had fond affection for you. We labored. We endured hardship. We imparted our lives. We behaved uprightly. We were fathers to you. And so he's describing the leadership and what they did when they were in Thessalonica to see this church raised up in three months. A whole other culture, a whole different religion, a different language. Paul went there and saw that happen. Really amazing. And then the last half, which we're doing first today, the last half was the reason why those leaders did what they did in the first half of First Thessalonians chapter 2. He said, we lived those lives, we did those things, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That's what Paul's concern for these Thessalonians is. That they would earn what Jesus did for them on the cross. And what does that mean? Well, let me just say something. This is where we really get deep, so to speak. Um, let me just say this. You know, a fish doesn't have to go to fish school to know how to be a fish. I don't know how that works, but all those fish there, none of them went to fish school. They just know how to be a fish. And the same way with these birds. You know, not one of those birds went to bird school to know how to become a bird. And you can be grateful, you know, that you're of greater value than a bird or, or a fish uh, because, you know, um, you know, you're, you do have to go to Christian school uh, to learn how to be a Christian. You need examples from others. You need encouragement from others. You need to be reading the scripture. You know, you need the Holy Spirit transforming your life. You know, we can't just live our lives and be Christians like a fish lives his and is a fish. Or a bird lives theirs and is a bird. You know, we've got to apply ourselves to being taught, to learning what it means to walk the worthy walk. To live lives that earn what Jesus did for us on that cross. That's why we're here this morning, isn't it? You know, to try to grow as Christians in our faith in Jesus and all that he did for us. You know, I'd like to read the passage today that we're going to be looking at is in 2 Thessalonians. I made the mistake last night to bring my one-day Bible, and I forgot to mark where 1 Thessalonians was. And I thought, oh no, you know, how, you know, it's hard to find a passage. But you know what? I opened right up to it last night. So, um, I don't know if that was a miracle or a coincidence. I don't know. But anyway, here it is. I have marked it this morning. I, I didn't want to test God twice on that. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. The passage for today. We will never stop thanking God that when we preached His message to you Thessalonians, you didn't think of the words we spoke as just being our own. You accepted what we said as the very Word of God, which of course it was. And this word continues to work in you who believe. And then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea also. Because of their faith in Christ, they suffered from their own people. For some of the Jews had killed their own prophets, and some even killed the Lord Jesus. Now, they have persecuted us and driven us out. And they displease God and oppose everyone by trying to keep us from preaching the good news to you, the Gentiles, for fear some of you might be saved. By doing this, they continue to pile up their sins. But the anger of God has caught up with them at last. 
Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts have never left you, we tried very hard to come back to you because of our intense longing to see you again. Verse 18. We wanted very much to come, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. And after all, what gives us hope and joy, and what is our proud reward and crown? It is you. Yes, you will bring us as much joy as we stand together before our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back again, for you are our pride and joy. So that's the kind of letter he's writing to the Thessalonians and some of the points we learn in this second uh, part of this book. Now, in, in uh, the worthy walk then in 2 Thessalonians, Paul said he wrote this so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. And if we look at that passage, here's what we kind of find. The Thessalonians, remember as we read it just now, they received the word. Not for what it was, just Paul's words, but the Word of God. They, that Word began to work within them. That Word began to guide them. He said, again, that you imitated other churches, the ones in Judea, who also were persecuted by their countrymen. You had to imitate that because you were persecuted by your countrymen. And then also he said, you imitated really more specifically their long-suffering. He said, you withstood satanic hindrances also. These are some of the things that the Thessalonians did that characterized their worthy walk that Paul's trying to encourage them in. Now Paul used this phrase, walk in a worthy manner, to the Ephesian church also. Ephesus is not in Greece, it's in what we call today Turkey, in Asia Minor. But Paul wrote the same thing to them. And in that letter, this is the passage he wrote in the first uh, verse of chapter 4 of Ephesians. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy, to earn what Jesus did for you on the cross, to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So in this verse, he even enumerates what it means to walk worthily. So if we kind of put it together, the wider the characteristics of the worthy walk to the Ephesians, the red are characteristics of the worthy walk to the Thessalonians. And they kind of mesh together. Humility. Well, you know, imitating others, seeing your need, and the need to imitate someone else's humility. You know, receiving the Word of God, seeing your need for God's Word, and reading it, and seeking it out to apply it to your life. That's humility. Seeing your need and seeking that out from God. Gentleness was one of the terms used. Patience was one of the terms used to the Ephesians. Suffering or long-suffering was the term used by Paul to the Thessalonians. Love and to the Thessalonians, unity. These are the terms, the characteristics of a worthy walk. These character qualities. Now, I'm not sure how much time we have, but I don't think you want me to go through all of these. So I was trying to think, if I were just to focus in on one of those qualities today, which one would I like to focus in on? Well, I think I would like to focus in on uh, long-suffering. I think that's the quality that I th would like to emphasize, that we grow in, in order that we live out, at least in that dimension, live out a worthy walk, worthy of our calling, a walk, a life that earns what Jesus did for us on the cross, requires we long suffer in the course of our lives. Long suffering. You know, there's uh, a few points on this long suffering I'd like to enumerate, and we'll hit each one before we break today. One is, you know, what really helps us? First of all, let me just say, what would really help us long suffer? Let me just throw the question out, though, first, to set the stage on these points. If I just threw it out to you guys, and I would like to throw it out to you guys, I'm stalling for time right now to give you, begin to let you think about this, but what are ways that you've suffered this week? I know for sure this message will relate to everybody in this room, because I've suffered this week. I have sufferings going on in my life. And I know all of you do too. But um, I'd like to hear some of your, your sufferings because misery, you know, 
loves, how's that go? Misery loves company, I guess it is. But how about it? What are some of the ways that you're asked or recalled to, required to, to suffer, to long suffer? Julie told me to stop now and not say anything. <laughs> Last night I kind of kept talking, but... And I know that there... Here I go again. I know that there's some... <laughs> I know that there's some sufferings that you're not going to want to share, and you can't share. It's almost just too personal. I've got a few of those. I do. I wouldn't share... If I was asked to share them, I would not share them with you. But there's a few I could share, because they're not that big enough. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But if there's any that you could share, what well, might be a few? Just yell them out at your, at your seat there. Yeah, Anita. Car issue when my husband's out of town. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, and, and knowing your car, that's long suffering. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Yeah, right. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, that's good. And, what's that, Lynn? Being oppressed. Oppressed. Okay, and I'm not exactly sure what you might mean by that, but I, I, I can imagine what you mean by that. There's so many ways we can all be oppressed by other people, by circumstances. One of the things someone threw out last night was, you know, the loss of a loved one, someone who's died. And, you know, I remember a man telling me he lost his wife. It's kind of an amazing thing. He, he was a teacher I had, and he actually prepared her body for burial and everything. I mean, it was kind of, a, I've never heard of that before. It's kind of shocked me. But he, um, he loved his wife so much, and he said, you know, you have a cold, you can get over it in a couple weeks, right? But when you lose someone you love, it's like having your arm amputated. Your arm never grows back. A couple weeks later, it's still, still amputated. And he said, that's what it's like to lose a loved one. It's just always missing for the rest of your life. That's long-suffering, you know, to have that happen. And um, that's one of the long-sufferings we'll have. Sandra mentioned that last week, last night. Any others? Boy, you know, that's just an everyday suffering of sorts, you know, uh, trying to be that Christian in this world. And, you know, they don't go together. It's oil and water. And that friction, or uh, it, it hurts sometimes. It's difficult. That's long-suffering, too. Watching a friend's marriage fall apart. Oh, yeah, watching a friend's marriage fall, fall apart, just the challenges of life that we all face like that. Not maybe even always being able to do anything about things that you see happening around you. Kind of leaving, kind of feeling helpless to help, maybe. Those are ways we can suffer. I know some of us have physical ailments. When you hit my age, every day you're suffering. That, I mean, in some way, shape, or form, I've got pains, it seems like. Uh, that's one of the ones I can tell you. You know, I've got some that I get. Um, you know, my wife shared last night, she has a brother that's been a drug addict now. Boy, just one credit short, or a paper short of his PhD in mathematics at Iowa State. Taught at Greeley for a long time. We got into drug use, and we haven't even known where he's at. Uh, until this month we heard that a nephew who's driving a, a bus in Iowa, he actually got onto that bus. And that's the first we heard, heard of him for many years. But, um, you know, that's kind of a long-suffering thing. Julie doesn't even always think of it, but there's a certain amount of emotional energy that's constantly being drained. Sometimes even unknowingly, but just a constant drain. Just knowing that's out there. Even unknowingly knowing, I guess, that it's out there. There's this drain of energy as you live with this reality of someone you love and uh, who've chosen you know, a lifestyle that uh, now that has just really destroyed them. You know? That's hard. That's a long-suffering, too. Any final example? Traffic. Traffic. Whoa, brother. <laughs> You may be referring to me, I don't know, because uh, uh, I had a traffic ticket the other day. Uh, yeah, oh man, and we live in Denver too, boy. 
That's crazy. There's so many, so many th ways we suffer. So how do we begin to, you know, rise above our financial troubles, our health issues, challenges with our children, relational issues, all of the things that you've mentioned. One is we're to consider it joy. Two is we're to allow these challenges into our life. Three, we can start claiming promises for the future. We can understand our total forgiveness. We can acquire a taste for pain. We can expect suffering. But I like to go into each one of these points. Number one, James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Consider it joy. You know, and I, I got to say, when I encounter a trial, chances are I don't consider it a joy. And, you know, you really um, are put to this test with every trial that you're facing. It's really reflected in that quote at the bottom of the page by Elizabeth Elliot. Every experience of suffering puts you to the test. Do I trust God or not? And that'll be the test we're up against. And when we're up against a trial, we can choose to receive it with joy or we can rebel against God. We can begin to question God. We can begin to resent God, resent others that have brought this trial into our life. We can be mad at ourselves for making a decision that brought a trial into our life. We can begin to become bitter about trials in our lives, especially when they're a long-suffering trial. And that can happen, but God is reminding us to consider it all joy. Now you might say, well, how do I do that? We'll look at that in just a minute. But that's how God wants us to receive our trials. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to endure, but with the temptation provide a means of escape. Now, if you were here last night, you can't answer this, but what are some synonyms of what are some synonyms of the word suffer? Real fast. Boom, 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 boom. Pain. Anguish. Anguish. Sorrow. Sorrow. Trial. Pardon me? Trial. Trial. Oh, wow. John, were you here last night? No, Mr. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Darn it. I should have kept that white. <laughs> That's right. And in the King James, in the King James Version. Very good, John. Man, that guy's smart back there. <laughs> He's also a killjoy, but in the King James Version, it actually says, and I'm just going to translate that one word in, King James, in the King James Version, no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man, and God will not suffer you to be tempted. That's what the King James says. Yeah, the word suffer is a word that means allow, allow is a synonym for the word suffer, along with all the other ones you mentioned. And God wants you to suffer your sufferings. He wants you to allow these sufferings into your life. Now how do you do that again, right? How do you receive it with joy? How do you even receive it? How do you even allow trials into our lives? Well, that's where these next verses might help. One thing is, James 1.17, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. You know, we have got to remember our blessings in the midst of our trials. You know, the other night, uh, I was at, two nights ago, I was at my mom's, who lives in town. My cousin came in from Chicago with his wife. And so I went over there to hang out with him, his wife, and my mom. Uh, his dad was my mom's brother. And so we were all together. And right now, Julie and I do have some challenges, some, uh, some you know, uh, sufferings that we're enduring. And so um, we were sitting there, and John was beginning to share some of the sufferings he was facing. He's about five years younger than I am, but he's going blind in one eye. He's had a detached retina, numerous uh, operations even, to try to get it hooked back on right, and it's just not working. He's had a back problem that's required surgery. He lost his job that he had with the bank in Chicago for 20 years because of all of his illnesses. His wife has uh, anal cancer, which took the life of her mother and her sister. 
and his son Jack uh, has a brain tumor. He's 18 years old. He's going to graduate from high school this May, and uh, he had that brain tumor when he was in fifth grade, and it just came back last year. You know, so, and I told Julie as we left there, I said, you know, yeah, we've got some pain and suffering, but you know what? I wouldn't trade ours for his, you know. And my guess is if all of us got together in a big giant circle, held hands, singing Kumbaya, and throw our trials in, in the big circle, my guess is most of us would walk away with the trial we came with. And you know why I say that? Because of that one verse we read, no temptation has overtaken you, that, but such is his common demand. God is faithful. He's not even going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. A lot of the temptations you guys have, God's not going to let me have those because I can't handle those. And the temptations I have, He's not going to let you have because you can't handle them. God kind of handpicks our temptations, our trials, because He knows you can handle them. And that's why, one reason, biblically, that I think you'll walk away with the trial you came with. And I think sometimes we just have to not only realize that some people have it worse than us, although that does help, <laughs> but I also have to just count all my other blessings. Who Does somebody remember that book that's out now? Julie was here and she could tell us. Maybe, but who's the guy that wrote it? He's that guy that made that movie. I can't remember. It just came out. D'Souza? No, not D'Souza. Dinesh, Dinesh D'Souza, that's it, that guy, Dinesh D'Souza, he just wrote a book on suffering, and it kind of addressed that issue of, uh, you know, why did you know, bad things happen to good people, how could God allow something into our life, his point in the book was, well, yeah, bad things happen, but when you take a life, put the bad things on one side of the scale, Oh my goodness. He was saying, all the good things on the other side of the scale far outweigh those things. And we forget that. We just have to count and enumerate. Because that will help us receive trials with joy. It will help us allow trials into our life. If, if we count our blessings. And then this next verse... And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. This certainly is one of my, if you want to call it a life verse, because I go back to this verse over and over in the course of my life. I think you probably will too. You know, because you know, when things, difficult things come into our life, you know, we can transcend those trials by recognizing God's got a purpose for them. And God can work those trials out together for good in our life. That gives us a basis for receiving that trial with joy. It gives us a basis for allowing that trial into our life. For, to suffer the suffering of that trial. You know, it gives us that basis. I kind of think of it like a GPS. You know, and one thing, I just, you know... I never want to buy another GPS because with our little fleet of vehicles, I've had to buy so many GPSs. But anyway, I do love them. I like to have one of them anyway. But when, I, when, it, when you miss the exit, you know how it recalculates. And I think sometimes there's sufferings that come into our life. And God begins to recalculate. And you might say, well, boy, yeah, but this, the recalculation is going to take me twice as long to get where I was going. But you know what? You see twice as much of the country that way. You know? You see a lot more sights that way. That's kind of neat. But yeah, you know, God wants to, um, you know, causes all things. You know, I heard Johnny Erickson taught us speak once many years ago. I don't know if you guys even know her. She used to be kind of popular. She's been on the radio some. She's written books some. She's my age. But when we were teens, she was diving in the Chesapeake Bay, shallow water, broke her neck, quadriplegic the rest of her life. But when I heard her speak, she was also became very good at painting with a paintbrush out of her mouth. And she would do landscapes. And she would tell her story of her life as she drew this beautiful landscape. But then the day of the accident became a black streak right down the middle of that landscape. And she said, that was the day of my accident. And I thought my landscape had just been destroyed. But she continues to share her story. And she begins to streak out different lines from that big line she drew down the middle of her landscape. And before long, you realize she's painting a tree. 
a big tree that gave depth to the, to the landscape. And in fact, it made the landscape even look more beautiful because of that tree. And she used this verse as an example of her own life where God caused a terrible thing but worked it together for good. And she actually said this. I still have a hard time believing it. But this is what she said. I'm not calling her a liar. But she said, you know, if I had to live my life over, I would want God to have made me a quadriplegic when I was a teenager because of all the things she used in my life. You know, and taught me through it in the course of my life. Now, I never became a quadriplegic because I don't think I could have handled it. But she did because God knew she could. And she's received it with joy. She's allowed it into her life. Partly because of this verse. And this verse can apply to us in our suffering also as we transcend the challenge and apply it into our life. I'll read this uh, passage from Psalm 73. And this is a passage of a man who described himself in 21, verse 21. I realized how bitter I had become, how pained I had been all by all my, I had seen. I was foolish and I was ignorant. This is how he described himself. And how did he get to be in that spot in his life? Asaph was his name. Well, in verse 1, here's how, how he said he got there. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I came close to the edge of the cliff. My feet were slipping. I was almost gone. I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. You know, they seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They aren't troubled like other people or plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like jeweled necklace and their clothing is woven cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. I'm not sure what translation this is. <laughs> they scoff and speak only evil. You know, in their pride, they seek to crush others. And by the way, there were many years in my life I could not put a face with these verses. But I'm telling you, as I stand here tonight, I put faces with these verses myself. I can picture people like this. People I know by name. They boast against the very heavens. And their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused. Drinking in all their words. He became dismayed. He became confused. And then he became bitter. Does God realize what is going on? They ask. Is the Most High even aware of what is happening? Look at these arrogant people. Enjoy, enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Was it for nothing that I kept my heart pure and kept myself from doing wrong? All I get is trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. And so he goes on. He, he said, it's almost futile that I try to live a righteous life, try to live a life worthy of what God had done for him. But then he kind of jumped forward into the future. And he said this. Verse 17, Then one day I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I thought about the destiny of the wicked. And truly you put them on a slippery path and send them on a sliding over a cliff to destruction. In an instant they are destroyed, swept away by terrors. Their present life is only a dream that is gone when they awake. And when you arise, O Lord, you will make them vanish from this life. And then he continues on. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides thee. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever and ever. And, you know, that's kind of a, a forward-looking approach to life, where you kind of see the big picture by looking to the, the future. And God has tons of future promises for us that we can claim in the present that should help us receive with joy and allow suffering into our life as we claim promises that we'll see Him one day, that we'll be with Him one day in heaven, that this earth is quickly passing. Those are the promises we often need to claim as well. And then 2 Peter 1.9, where he who lacks these wonderful qualities enumerated in verses 1-8, through is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. You know, I think some category of the trials we face are those we bring about in our own lives because of wrong choices we've made. And sometimes we can be plagued with guilt. So it's kind of an internal trial. You know, we feel guilty, we feel we've blown it, 
can't you know imagine how we could be so stupid as all of that you know I don't know if you've had those feelings but I know I have but it's in those kind of trials we need to claim promises like in 2 Peter 1.9 that we're totally forgiven we're totally forgiven from any regret we might you know otherwise have in the course of our life now sometimes we incur the consequence and the consequence itself of choices becomes a long suffering like our brother Norm Chavez in Greeley who died this week 30 year old kid or so uh, he had a terrible drinking problem at the age of 14 alcoholic ruined his liver went to the hospital he bore the consequence of choices he made yet there he was a wonderful Christian living out his life under the Lord and the church up there he bore that consequence though his health for the rest of his life long suffering but you know he could have joy in the midst of that he could allow that suffering into his life as he claims these promises and today he's with the Lord so there can be those consequences but I will but don't you think he could be challenged man if I did if I just didn't do that when I was 14 years old I could have another 30 years for the Lord 40 years for the Lord he could think like that but you know it's so important when you have those self-doubts and criticisms to know that you're just totally forgiven in God's eyes and you will stand before the Lord one day face to face and be just like him and then Luke 9.24 Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. You know, the reason we don't want to lose our lives is because it's only natural not to want to die. It's only natural not to want to experience pain in our lives. And we'll not lose our life if we don't acquire a taste for pain. It's kind of like Ned's coffee over there. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I did ask last night, though, how many people in this room like or don't like coffee? And it was me and two others. Uh, I forget who they were now, but uh, I couldn't believe it. So, you know, there's a lot of coffee. How many here don't like coffee? Well, there's a lot more here. Non-coffee drinkers, I guess the conclusion is go to church on Sunday mornings. Maybe that's it. But in any case, I've never acquired a taste for coffee. I'm not sure I've acquired a taste for pain. But to walk a worthy life, you almost have to. Because it's going to hurt. It's going to take pain to live for others. And God calls us to live. He's actually calling us to incur pain we wouldn't otherwise experience if we don't live for others. But to be a Christian... And where we live and rub shoulders and try to encourage others and be there for others and help others come to know Christ, encourage our fellow brothers. You know, we're going to incur, it's almost like you've got to acquire a taste for pain to live for others. And the final verse, and I know I'm probably going a little overboard here, is this one. And it's from Thessalonians, we'll close with this. You know quite well that we were destined for trials. Thessalonians. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. And sometimes we just have to live our lives expecting it, just expecting trials and challenges. And um, I think it helps, helps you receive them with joy, helps you suffer suffering when you expect it, and it prevents you from falling into bitterness and, and, and rebellion and, and regret and so forth. Again, every experience of suffering will put you to the test, as it has me. Do I trust God or not? And hopefully we will trust God through these sufferings. And hopefully we will, through long suffering, live lives worthy of what Jesus did for us on the, on the cross. And uh, let's pray and ask God that that would be the case. And uh, we'll close right now. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. Lord, we want to, in a sense, earn, or at least walk worthy of what you've done for us. Earn this, you're saying to us. And we want to earn it. Walk worthily. And uh, be taught and open to how we can do it more. So that in growing ways, we can be worthy of our calling. And Lord, not only in this area, but all the other ways that we can grow in walking worthy lives, I pray that would be the case. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. We commit this day, this week to you, Lord. Help us to trust you for all things. Uh, suffer suffering joyfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. Have a good day.